Let's pray together. Father, as we come again to your word, we are thankful for it. We thank you for this series that we've been able to work through in relation to the prophet Elisha and bless it to us today, not just the things that are said, but our thoughts and intentions of our hearts as we go and meditate upon what we've heard today. Uh, Teach us that we might have hope, certainly in the face of a hopeless world at the present time. With thanks we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the last in this series on the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha. And to do that, we jump ahead quite a bit, all the way to chapter 13 of Second Kings. In fact, to the very final act of Elisha's ministry and to his death and what happened after his death. Through this series on Elisha, I hope that you've been able to pick up the state of the nation. That is, the spiritual state of the nation of Israel in which Elisha lived. And I hope you've been able to note that it was anything but healthy. Anything but healthy. Idolatry was rampant. Kings were unbelieving and often evil. And the nation itself was anything but a safe place to be. Enemy nations surrounded them and enemy nations often attacked. In short, it was a pretty hopeless situation. And to express that a little more colourfully, you might like to pick an expression like, well, things were up the creek or it was a sticky wicket or they were in a tight spot, or between a rock and a hard place, to describe the situation of the people. The nation was on its knees politically and spiritually. Politically, it was constantly in fear of the Syrians, and its army had been reduced to something more like a home guard with only enough chariots to form a guard of honour, not the deadly military machine it once was, Spiritually, the nation was even worse. The stench of idolatry, the sins of the house of Jeroboam, and no longer the worship of Baal, but the worship of a golden calf, combined with another fertility cult, and all the practices that went with that were all over the land. These combined to mean that things in Israel had become rotten to the core. There was no improvement when one king died and another king rose to power. So when Jehoash became king in verse 11 of chapter 13, it tells us that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. As they say, like father, like son, The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Whatever political, economic and social problems there were, and they all appeared hopelessly terminal, the root problem in Israel was spiritual. Israel was a nation that had turned her back upon the Lord and was about to suffer the consequences of it. So the question that our text from 
chapter 13 asks us and seeks to address is this one. Is there any hope? Is there any hope anywhere? Is it possible for a people, a nation, to be revived? And more than that, is there any hope in the face of death? As we look about at our nation, we could ask the same questions. We could look at the state of the church in the land of Australia. We could look at the rise of secularism and postmodernism and what one commentator calls the spread of affluenza, which is what relatively wealthy people suffer from, affluenza. We know too we live in a world that's not so different from Elisha's. And those two questions demand our attention. Is there hope for us? Or should we just give up the whole idea and pack up and go home? Those kind of thoughts may may or may not have crossed your minds. If they haven't as yet, well, they have now because I've implied them, spoken them. And if they have, then this last instalment on the life of Elisha and the death of Elisha may bring you some hope and comfort. Two things this morning. First, in verses 10 to 19, let's note how power sprang from weakness. It was not only the fact that Elisha lay suffering from an illness from which he would die that makes the circumstances of our text this morning seem pitiful to the extreme. Elisha's weakened state and nearness to death could be looked at as being symbolic of the health of the whole nation. Weakened, vulnerable, defenceless and terminal. At any moment's notice, the Syrians could simply walk in and plunder the whole country and there was very little that the king could do and he knew it. The country was sick and as close to death as was Elisha the prophet, the man of God. So when the king came to see Elisha and came to his deathbed and saw him, he was visibly shocked by what he saw. The prophet was laying there terminally ill and the king wept over him. His weeping was not that of a distressed relative or a friend visiting a dying loved one. It was worse than that. For Elisha was the point of contact between the nation and God. And as we've seen throughout these stories and miracles concerning his life, Elisha the prophet could make all the difference between defeat and victory when it came to war. And now he was laying there dying. And the king said to him, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, which you might remember, was the phrase used by Elisha himself when he saw Elijah going up into heaven in that whirlwind of 2 Kings chapter 2. In other words, the king was aware of what was coming 
for Elisha. The king was aware that he was the true champion of Israel. He was the connection between the wayward nation and a faithful God. And perhaps those chariots were about to come near for this prophet too. We remember that in history, Mary, Queen of Scots, once declared, she feared the prayers and the preaching of the great reformer John Knox more than all the armies of England. One of the themes that we've noted through all these incidents in Elisha's life has been that throughout all his ministry, throughout all his miracles, there's been a greater reality Behind kings and their armies lies a greater invisible reality of the king and his heavenly army. Elisha had been like that reformer, John Knox, his preaching and his prayers. And so there is more than a hint of self-interest in the king. Once Elisha was gone, what's going to happen? Who would protect them? What supernatural aid would be available? The future doesn't bear thinking about if Elisha, if you're about to die. But it's all empty emotionalism. All the business of what he said. If he really had believed it, then they wouldn't have been in the mess that they were in. It was because God and his voice through the prophet had been abandoned, with Israel thinking it could go it alone, that they faced this disaster. Ultimately, the king was not really concerned with God's glory. If he had been, he would have repented long ago and would have got rid of all his idols. He was simply concerned about his own empire and his own neck. But the amazing thing is that God was gracious and patient and was willing to meet the nation. And we see that played out in relation to these arrows we have on the screen before us. The two things that happened with arrows. We see it in verse 15. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king. Open the east window and shoot the arrow. And he shot. And Elisha said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. You will completely destroy the Syrians at Aphek. Here were two very weak men, Elisha physically on his deathbed and Jehoash morally and spiritually. And while Elisha can hardly lift his arms, Jehoash cannot lift his sights beyond the material and the immediate. But in this act of symbolic prophecy, Elisha declared who was the real protector and deliverer of Israel. Did you see in verse 17? The Lord's arrow of victory. The God this king had spurned, whose laws he had trampled upon, he is the God who will come to the aid of his people. There's hope. The arrow has gone through the window. There's hope. In that arrow, Elisha sees victory. But is it a full victory? Is it a complete victory? He says to the king, 
Take the arrows in your hand and strike them to the ground. And the king takes the arrows and strikes them three times and stops. It's odd, isn't it? What would you do? If you were in the king's shoes and you were told by the prophet, strike them on the ground, I think I'd just go bang once. But he does it three times and even that's not enough. Elisha was angry. You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have completely defeated Syria. But now you will over only defeat it three times. You see, what Elisha was looking for in the king was an expression of something more than half-heartedness. Why the king didn't do as Elisha assumed he would or hoped he would, we really don't know. Maybe the king just wasn't in tune Maybe he believed it didn't really matter. After all, what possible difference could it make whether you hit the ground once or twice or five times or six times? Who's counting? Elisha's counting. And at the very least we can say that though he shot the arrow through the window, when it comes to the victory, really desiring victory, the king is half-hearted. The king is timid. Striking the ground as he did maybe indicated that his heart wasn't really in this. And it seemed that he lacked the needed faith in the Lord who stood behind the prophet and spoke this command through his mouth. And so the consequences of this would be serious. Success against the enemies of the Syrians was going to be limited instead of total. He would win some battles, but he wouldn't win the war. I wonder if that speaks to you. Do you stop short of receiving God's best? Do you pray once, no answer, gave up? Maybe prayed twice, gave up just because it doesn't seem like anything's happening? Or do you pray until the answer comes? If you're going to serve the Lord, you cannot have room for being half-hearted. John Wesley was never half-hearted. Let me read to you this excerpt from his diary. Sunday morning, May 5, preached in St Anne's, was asked not to come back. Sunday p.m. May 5, preached at St John's. Not here, by the way. Deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday a.m. May 12, preached in St George's. Kicked out again. Sunday a.m. May 19, preached at St Somebody Else's. Deacons called special meeting and said I couldn't come back. Sunday p.m. May 19, preached on the street kicked off the street. Sunday a.m. May 26, preached in Meadow, chased out of Meadow as a bull was turned loose during the service. Sunday a.m. June 2, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday p.m. June 2, afternoon service, preached in a field. 10,000 people came to the service. My reflection, 
I wouldn't have got past May 5. Kicked out of the pulpit? That's it. There are times when you have to ask yourselves, to what extent is the spiritual ineffectiveness of the church in our land traceable to the lack of determination and commitment to the gospel on behalf of his people? Quite a lot, I would suspect. Not that it should be, not when you profess to worship this God, but what we see here is that even in a situation which from a human point of view is one of weakness and hopelessness, God demonstrates his strength. He will defeat his enemies. And we know that that's so because of the cross. On that local rubbish tip outside Jerusalem where the supreme sign of weakness and rejection was displayed through the one who couldn't not only lift his arms, let alone move his arms, because they were nailed to a piece of wood. This is where God defeats his enemies, decisively. And there on the cross, all the vain things of the world, all its pomp and power which drag us down and kill our hope, is also put to death and shown to be powerless and empty. And you know what? The same pattern is repeated in the lives of his people. It's not through clever strategies. It's not through victory marches. It's not through high-flying thinking or influencing the high and the mighty that his kingdom comes. But it's through the apparently weak things, the helpless things of the world, the prayer meetings, the personal contacts, the labour of love, amongst the children and the poor. That's the way the kingdom of God comes. And it can't be stopped. Out of weakness springs power. Even if that weakness means death. That leads us nicely to the second point where we see that in these verses that life sprang from death. This is 20 to 21. We've heard how ill Elisha was, so it's no surprise to read in verse 20 that Elisha died and was buried. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us they had a magnificent funeral for Elisha. But the word of God tells us nothing about it. It simply says, Elisha died and they buried him. No chariots of fire came down from heaven for Elijah's successor. The voice that had so often stirred the heart of the nation was silent. The hands that many a time had proved so strong in the hour of need were hanging down in stillness. The form that for many a year had been so familiar in Israel was now gone. Though he had been faithful as the Lord's prophet in declaring his will, it's worthy of note that Elijah did not go the same way as his forerunner Elijah. While Elijah was spared death, Elisha had to go through it like the one he was foreshadowing, Jesus. But as Elisha died, so also the nation's hopes died with him. The security of the nation had depended on his work. 
Therefore, in God's plan, a miracle occurred to show that through though the prophet of God was dead, the God of the prophet was very much alive. Verse 20 goes on to tell us about Elisha's last miracle, even when he was dead. When those Moabite raiders came into the land and they were burying a man, panic-stricken, the grave diggers and the funeral directors have no option than to abandon the body in a local tomb that just happens to be where Elisha is buried. The corpse abandoned by men, though, is not abandoned by God. It's a situation of defeat that's transformed. It is death, but from it comes life. It's a perfect picture of what God is able to do with his people He will not abandon them, though they have no cause for complaint if he did. Rather, it's because of his covenant love, he sticks by them, he turns defeat into victory, he turns death into life, even through a man that is dead. But think of this in relation to the people of God back then. They, the church of that time, were all but dead and appeared to have no future. Their leadership was rotten and had, like its king, lost her way. But God can do this. God can raise the dead. God can revive his church. God can give power to the weak when the situation is so hopeless. But there's more in the incident, isn't there? What's interesting here is that when the man fell into Elisha's grave... What was it that brought him back to life? The scriptures tell us as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. As soon as he touched the body, he was given life. Note this well. This event that took place in a tomb 3,000 or more years ago, in the plan and the purpose of God typifies What happens when people who are spiritually dead by birth, and that includes all of us as we read in Ephesians 2 this morning, when those who are dead by birth are made alive or born from above or born again by the working of God's Spirit through the preaching of Christ crucified so that those who are dead are united to Christ by faith and receive from him all the benefits of his resurrection life. That is to say, we live because God makes us alive. We heard that in Ephesians 2. We were not sick, but we were dead. But God, out of his great mercy, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus And further to this, we're told by Jesus himself, John 5, 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In other words, by coming into contact with Jesus through faith in him, just as this dead man did with Elisha's bones, we are granted life beyond what life offers, eternal life. Just as the scripture says, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I started off this morning thinking about hopeless situations and phrases that might be used to describe them. And what I suggest now is that whatever you or I might face, our situation can never be described as without hope. Because as long as the Lord Jesus Christ still lives and as long as he still gives life to the dead, as long as he remains alive, which is of course is forever, then we have hope. In a rapidly changing and uncertain world, only his promises remain unchanged and certain. And here is the conclusive answer to the questions I ask. Can God restore a nation? Yes, he can. Can God give life to the dead? Yes, he can. Can we have a hope which is certain? Yes, we can. For just as Elisha's ministry continued beyond his death, So the ministry of Jesus continues, not while he is dead, but he is alive. And because he lives, we are assured of that most wonderful hope that if we are joined to him by faith, then you too will live. Remember what Jesus said at the tomb of Lazarus when he called out Lazarus by name? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me shall what? Shall never die. So what you and I are faced with this morning is this bare reality that in all of history, ever since the days of Elisha, there is only one person who has ever raised anyone back to life. And he too was dead. And he too was raised to life. And he invites you and me, indeed the whole world, to take him at his word and trust him And if we do, we're no longer up any creek. We're safe on solid ground. Where are you standing this morning? Have you seen the link, that direct link, that links Elisha to the one who was to come to Jesus? Don't put your trust in Elisha. Put your trust in in the one who raises the dead. He is your only hope in the face of death. Have you done that? Make him your hope. He is the only one who holds the keys to life and death, to heaven and to hell. Trust him and do it now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have so much in your word that gives us hope. We are never without hope because our Saviour lives. 
We know that's true because he appears in the book of Revelation as the one who holds the keys to life and death, to heaven and to hell, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We read through the book and we see that he wins. Thank you for the hope we have, the comfort that is ours, the certainty that we know that though we face all kinds of trials and all kinds of difficulties, that grace will lead us home, encourage us, refresh us, renew us today in the hope we have that no matter what happens on earth, nothing changes what our Lord Jesus has accomplished for us, which will last not just for this life, but for all eternity. Comfort and encourage us. Point us to Christ, the one you sent into the world to be our Saviour, that our hope might always, even in the face of death, be in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.